My name's Noah Lowry, for those of y'all who don't know, and I'll be the first Noah preaching today. (laughs) So open up your Bibles to Matthew 14, verses 22 through 33. Before we get started, let me introduce myself for those of you who don't know me. I'm a senior at Cox Mill High School, and in the fall I will be attending Western Carolina University. I've grown up in a Christian home, I'm raised by my two loving parents, and I've grown up in the youth group since I was very young. I've been blessed to have many opportunities, such as the upcoming Delaware mission trip, or this right here. So like I said, it will be Matthew 14, verses 22 through 33, and we will be talking today about God's provision and man's fear. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost, and they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart at his eye, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for bringing everybody here today, and thank you for giving us this wonderful opportunity to come in front of the congregation. And please help everyone see you today, and not us, as you give us the words to speak for them. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may now be seated. So the story of Peter is a pretty popular one, and if you've grown up in Sunday school, you've probably heard the heard this story at least once. But usually the story is told from the lens of Peter, how he is a great example of faith. And although this is true, that's not what we're going to look at today. Today we're going to look at what this passage says about God and the provisions he provides for us. Before we get started, just a little bit of background on the book of Matthew. It's written by Matthew, you would guess. And it was written to new Christians to encourage them to not get uh, down by the persecutions in their life and to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. So let's look to the first two verses, 22 and 23, for the first provision that God has given us in his fear, his authority. So in the first two verses, you see Jesus. He immediately sends away the crowds and the disciples. Now, this doesn't sound like that much of an interesting thing to do. He just told them to go home after a long day. But if you look to verse 19, just before this, you see Jesus ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. So this was the miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000. And the crowds were enthralled. They were really excited. But it's in John 6, verse 15, that we find out why they're so excited. It says, Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, 
Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So the crowds at this part, point of time, think that Jesus has come to set up a physical kingdom. They want him to overthrow Rome. And they're willing to try and kidnap him and force him to do it. So they're trying to put their authority over him. So all things considered, Jesus sending them away without any fuss is a lot more impressive. They wanted to put their selfish plans in front of God. But God, in his authority, flips it around. His plans come first. So the disciples' motivation is very similar, but slightly different. So they also think that he is here to set up a physical kingdom, and they do want to make him go overthrow Rome. But they also, whatever their motivations are, they love Jesus. And you can't fault them for that. They do not like to leave his side. They try and stick with him wherever he goes, and they get really nervous when they're left alone. But third and finally, their motivation is the storm that they later get called in. You see, you guys know how it is when there's a storm coming. You can feel the winds. You can see the clouds. It's not a surprise. So they were scared. They didn't want to go out into the water. But they didn't question Jesus. They got on the boat, and they left. They had unwavering, unquestioning obedience. Is it time for us to show this same obedience? Is God calling you to do something, to speak to someone? I know it can be hard. When I felt I was being led to come up here and talk in front of y'all, I was scared. I was like, oh God, someone else can do it. Someone else will be better. Let them go ahead. But here I am anyway. So how does God express this authority in our lives? It's not like he's standing right here telling us what to do and when to do it. No, he gives us his authority with this, a copy of his word. But why is his authority over us a provision in our fear? Surely we would be better off doing what we want. I know I don't like being told what to do. Well, God's authority is a provision for us because he doesn't have authority over just us. He has authority over everything and everyone, whether it's your boss at work or the president, whether it's your pet at home or the weather. He has authority over everything. And we can take solace in the fact that the Lord of the universe has authority because nothing happens that he he doesn't say so. So finally, after the crowds are dispersed, he goes up to the top of the mountain and starts to pray, showing the other side of his authority. He doesn't have just the same authority as a manager, but instead he also has spiritual authority, authority over our soul. And if you believe in him and accept him as a savior, then he is interceding for you in front of God and praying for you. Now look to the next two verses verses 24 and 25. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. So the next provision that God gives us in his sphere is his knowledge. So let's get a bit of context. Right now, we know that the boat is about three or four miles away from the land. So normally, when they go on a big journey, they stick close to the shore and at most go about a mile out to sea. This ensures that they can always see the land. 
So right now, they're really far out in the middle of nowhere. We also know it's in the fourth watch of the night. So the nights in this time period are broken up into four watches, with the fourth and final watch being sometime between three and six o'clock in the morning. So they have been out there for a long time. They've been out here for nine to 12 hours at this point. So, and finally, we know from Matthew 8 that the disciples know that Jesus is capable of calming such a store. In Matthew 8 is when Jesus is asleep and they get caught in a storm. Jesus wakes up, calms the storm immediately, kind of confuses why the disciples were worried in the first place, and then they just go back to normal. So the disciples know that Jesus can save them, but they don't know where he is. He's still up on the mountain preaching, or praying, sorry. So why doesn't Jesus come at the first watch of the night, or the second watch of the night? Well, as I said, the disciples already know he can save them, so that's not the lesson he's trying to teach today. He's trying to teach a different lesson, and he knows that if he waits, he'll get it through better. They will understand more. They'll learn and grow more. A good example of this is in Genesis 22. It's the story of Abraham and Isaac. It is when God has told Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. Now, God could have told them the day before, you don't really have to sacrifice Isaac. He could have said when he was strapped up to the altar that you don't have to. But no, he waits the last moment when Abraham has the knife in hand ready to go down and says, stop and use this ram instead. Well, he waited because he was trying to make a point. He was trying to let Abraham grow more. And in making him squirm and wait the last minute, he had the most growth he possibly could. Now, another example of knowledge would be with me at my work. So I work at a grocery store, and some customers that come in there are really crazy. Well-intentioned, but crazy nonetheless. Now, if I worked on my own knowledge, I probably would have slapped one of them by now. <laughs> but my manager's knowledge has told me that if I slap one of them, I'll probably lose my job. And that's probably not a good thing. And so because I listened to their knowledge, I haven't done something I regret yet. <laughs> I know for many, myself included, that accepting that we don't know everything is kind of tough. I know I, like, I know I think I like to know everything. But it's, and it's human nature to try and avoid danger, stress. But God knows what we can and can't handle much more than we can. He's got the divine knowledge of what we can and can't do. So when the going gets tough, God isn't ignoring us. He just knows, he has plans for us that we don't know. And we need to trust in God, through our fears. And I know it might be hard to take the leap of faith, but God knows what he's doing, and we don't. Now look to the next two verses, 26 and 27, for the third provision from God, his protection. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost, and they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, take heart it is I, do not be afraid. So let's recap what the disciples are going through right now. They're in the middle of the sea. It's been nine hours of rowing. 
They don't know where Jesus is. They don't know how they're going to get out of this mess, and they're probably not long for this world without some intervention. And then they see someone walking towards them. Now, I'm not an expert on seeing stuff like this. I've never seen someone walk on water. But if someone was breaking the laws of physics in front of me, I would probably be pretty scared. And the disciples definitely are pretty scared. So, but they are immediately calmed by the words of their master. Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And it's this moment that Jesus has been waiting for. It's this moment that he has been waiting to teach them these, this so long. So he's trying to let the disciples know that there's nothing that can get in the way of him saving his flock. If the fundamental properties of water can't stop Jesus, then what can? So he's proving to the disciples that there's no storm that can get in his way. There's nothing in our lives that we can't handle because we aren't the ones handling it. Jesus is. If you look to Joshua 1.5, it says, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so will I be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. So one example of this in my life has been at a summer camp called Mfuge. For those of you who don't know, the youth group goes to this camp once a year over the summer, and it's a week of mission-based projects around the surrounding area of where we stay. So the first year I went, we went to a park with a bunch of children, and we played with them for the whole week. Now, this park was in the middle of gang territory. You could, if you looked around, you could see the evidence of it. And although we didn't see any direct threats towards us, we knew that we probably weren't in the safest area. But we didn't run away. We didn't stop what we were doing because we knew that God was there to protect us. We knew that if it was in his will, we would be perfectly safe because there's nothing that anyone could do without him being able to step in if he needed to. Now, these verses aren't saying we will never suffer in our lives. Don't get me wrong. It's saying that we will suffer. It's saying we will always suffer. The point that it's trying to make is that there's nothing so irreversible that God's love and protection can't save us from. So we have two more provisions left today. I'm going to let my good friend Noah Deese take it here from now. Thank you for letting me speak. Good morning. So like Noah said, my name is Noah Deese, and I'm a senior at Northside Christian Academy this year. Unlike Noah, I do not know where I'm going to college. I have it down to Western Carolina and Chapel Hill. Um, I've been blessed to be raised in a Christian home, as well as been able to go to Northside and get a Christian education. And I want to thank Pastor Kevin, as well as Pastor Scott, the staff and congregation, for the opportunity we've been able to have to come here today. I've been able to be able to take part in creative ministries, as well as ensemble here, and I am able to go on the missions trip, so I'm thankful for that. So that's enough about myself. So now I want to look back at the passage we have for you today. So far, Noah has talked about three points of God's provision. God's authority, 
his divine knowledge, and his protection. So today I want to add two more provisions as well as emphasize the application of this text for you. So the next provision we see is God's love. And this comes from verses 28 through 31, which say, And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? In these verses, we see this interaction between Peter and Jesus. So just kind of reset the background for what is going on. The disciples have been tossed around from the storms and wind for many hours. They've been very scared, and now they see Jesus on the water. He calms them with his voice, and now Peter asks, Come out onto the water and see Jesus. Many different opinions can be cast on why Peter asked this, but I think the MacArthur New Testament commentary has a good explanation. It says, It seems much more probable that Peter was overjoyed to see Jesus, and that his supreme concern was to be safely with him. This really makes sense. If you think about it, Peter and the disciples have seen Jesus heal people, give parables, and perform miracles just like feeding of the 5,000 right before this. So in the raging storm, being where Jesus was would be the safest. A modern example, for instance, might be a child during a storm. Whenever a child wakes up in the middle of the storm, they don't just sit in their bed or look out the window. They run to their parents. Why? Because where their parents are, they feel safe, just like the disciples feel safe when they're around Jesus. As we read on, though, Peter doesn't stay focused on Jesus. He looks away at the storm around him, and he missteps. But this is where we see the example of God's love for us. When it says in verse 30, But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? We see that Jesus immediately reaches out for Peter. He doesn't just sit back and be like, well, you kind of got yourself into this problem and predicament, so you can try to get yourself out of it. No, he instantly helps Peter. And this is a glimpse of the love that God has for us. How else does God show his love for us? Two other major verses also reveal this. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal love. Life. God sent his own son to die on a cross and bear everyone's sin so that we can be saved from death and have eternal life with Jesus. This was the ultimate act of love that God showed to all mankind. This is a very impactful verse for me. When I was younger, I came here to Pitts for vacation Bible school. And throughout that week, we learned about John 3.16, as well as other verses that show God's love for us. At the end of that week, I felt a tugging in my heart to be saved. I asked for forgiveness for my sins as I had learned of God's love. Do you know Jesus, and have you experienced his love for you? Romans 5.8 says, But God shows his love for us, and that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. This verse also goes on to show God's love. We have a problem, sin. And you and I 
can't in any way, shape, or form solve that problem by ourselves. We are lost and stuck in that problem. But then some of the most encouraging words in the Bible come, which say, but God. God, in his eternal love, sent his son to die for our sins. Are you ever tempted to think that God doesn't or can't love you? Maybe you think your sin is too much. Please understand, that is one of Satan's favorite lies to entangle people with. God loves us so much that he gave himself for us. And if we are his, nothing can separate us from his love. Now don't mistake what I'm saying. We can't just continually live in sin and think everything will be okay. We must have a concerted effort to follow Jesus and turn from our sin. But the point is, God's love is forever. And his son came to die for everyone. Not just me. Not just any one single person. Everyone in the world. So we see through this act of him immediately saving Peter, his glimpse of his love for us. Our final provision in this passage is God's omnipotence. Which, if you don't know, that means his almighty power. And he is all powerful. And this comes from verses 32 through 33. And if you look at, back at the verses with me, it says, And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. We see that God is omnipotent, and that he calmed the storm without doing anything. And the commentary I read earlier also says this about, The most spectacular miracle was accomplished without Jesus saying a word or raising a hand. It was as if the wind was simply waiting for the miracle to be finished. And when it had served its purpose, it stopped. Jesus just stepped onto the boat and the wind calmed. He didn't have to look back. He didn't have to say anything. He didn't raise a hand. He just steps onto the boat. And this shows his power over creation. When I was preparing for this, I looked at the ESV study guide notes. And there was a note that I thought was very insightful. It says... By walking on water in a furious storm, Jesus demonstrates that he indeed is Lord over all creation. So there is no need to be afraid or to doubt. The only fitting response is to worship Jesus and to acknowledge that truly he is the Son of God. Which is the only time in Matthew that the disciples use this full title to address Jesus. So through this, um, him calming the storm, we see his power. In Hebrews 1.3 it says... He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. God created everything, you and I, the sun, moon, and stars. So it's fitting that he has power over everything, just as Hebrews says. So if God has power over everything, what is there to fear? 1 John 4.4 says, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in this world. What problems or fears might you have, or I? Your health, finances, even relationships? Do you feel like you may be sinking in your problems? A phrase we say around my house is, God's got this. There's no need to fear. Jeremiah 29.11 is one of the most encouraging verses in the Bible for me because it says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. No matter what the circumstance or the fear, God knows what's best for us. And he knows what we're going through. 
Before we head into the application part of this message, I just want to take a moment and recap the provisions we've learned about God today. We've learned of his authority. We've learned of his divine knowledge. We've learned of his protection, his love for each and every one of us, and his almighty power. Now I'd like to take a few minutes and focus on the application of these verses. So as we have learned the aspects of God, on top of that, there is another factor in this verse that applies to us very much. Fear. Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines fear as an unpleasant, often strong emotion caused by anticipation or awareness of danger. So I looked up in America the top fears of people so you can see how you relate to them. The Washington Post had 12, and I want to share with you the top three they have. Number three was bugs, snakes, and other animals. Number two was heights, which I agree with. And number one, public speaking. That's encouraging. (laughs) So these are just a few fears. And just one quick personal example. So when I was younger, I watched the Lord of the Rings movies. Very good movies if you haven't seen them. But there was a character in the movies named Gollum. He's this very, like, creepy-looking dude who has a weird voice, and to me, he was very scary. So after I saw him and heard his voice, I was afraid that every night he was crawling up my stairs to come get me. But I got over the fear, thankfully. But So now I want to look at our response to this story. See, as we read about this event, and as it takes place, Peter does step out onto the water. But then he looks at the storm and the winds around him, and starts to sink from fear as he takes his eyes off of Jesus. A point of application is that Satan will do whatever he can to take your focus off of Jesus. He wants nothing more than for us to get caught up in fear, worry, or sin, so we will not look towards Jesus. An example, an analogy I guess I can make, is a game of Jenga. If anyone has ever played it, it's this tower of bricks set at different um, directions, And the object of this game is to take a brick out and put it on the top without making the tower fall. In this example, or analogy, our lives are the tower, and we are playing an everyday game of focus. See, Satan is playing with the tower, trying to make it fall. So if we are the tower, Satan chooses weak spots in the tower, hoping that we will crumble. But when we focus on Jesus every day, he gives us the strength to combat the devil and his schemes. When we're trying to handle our everyday lives by ourselves, we can struggle, and we, will, we do struggle. And the point of this example is Satan knows our weak spots. Maybe it's a bad relationship. Maybe it's athletics becoming too much of a focus. Possessions, gossip, cursing, or even fear. Satan will throw situations every day into our lives to occupy our attention. This is why it's so vital. We need to focus on God. Just like Peter, when he looked away from Jesus, he stumbled in the water. Another example is horse racing. In horse racing, each horse has blinders on the side of its eyes. Now, this may seem as an impediment, but really the blinders help because they keep the horse focused on the finish line, and they don't look away at either side of the competition going on around them. For for Christians, as we keep our focus on God, We don't see the storm or winds around us, just like the horses, when they have the blinders, don't see the competition going on around them. In a movie I once saw 
card called McFarland USA. The movie was about a cross-country team. In one of their meets, the team's best runner is racing towards the finish line in first place. But as he's running, he looks back to see where the person is behind him, hoping to win, but he stumbles and falls. Later in the movie, and then he loses the race because the guy races in front of him. Later in the movie, though, the same situation arises, and the team's best runner stays focused on the finish line and wins the race. This is an example for us, just like Hebrews 12.1 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with, with endurance the race that is set before us. So through our lives, we need to try to keep our focus on God as we run life, through life, our race. A second point of application I want to make is that Jesus is greater than any sin or fear. So we need to trust him throughout our lives. Throughout our lives, there will be times of trouble and hardship where we feel like giving up. For me, a personal example was when I was transitioning from 6th to 7th grade. So when I was younger, I went to Northside for, a, for the first few years of my elementary education. And then I, went, I was homeschooled for three years. And after this, I transitioned into a public school, or a semi-public school, called Jane Freeze Magnet School. But I hated the initial transition. I had gone from a Christian school to a school of two people, my sister and I, to a school of almost 500, and that school wasn't Christian. So I remember that I, I remember that I truly wanted to leave. I remember sitting on my porch with tears rolling down my eyes because I truly hated going to the school. But my mom talked to me and she said, "Pray about it and give it a few weeks." So I did. I prayed about it and I asked that it, if it was Lord's will, it would get better. And after a few weeks, I ended up loving this school. And I came back for another year in eighth grade. If I had followed what I wanted to do, I would have quit the challenge of the school. But God had a different plan. And when I trusted him with the situation, I understood that his knowledge was greater than mine. Just as Noah talked about his divine knowledge earlier, of God's knowledge. So as Christians, we must keep our faith and trust in God, even in the hard times. But where else do we see examples like this? One... Noah. He had faith in God to build the ark, even though everyone else ridiculed him for what he was doing. Joseph. He was sold into slavery by his brothers, and then later he was thrown in prison in Egypt. Yet through it all, he trusted God. Also, Job. He had everything. He had the possessions, a great family, and the flocks. But all of that was taken away from him. Even his health was affected. Yet through it all, he trusted God in his plan. In closing, are you struggling with something today that is holding you back from staying focused fully on God? Do you need to let go of your sin and give it to God? Or maybe today, you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior. If you don't, please come talk to Pastor Kevin or Pastor Scott. Jesus loves you and wants to have a relationship with you. I want to leave you with one phrase today. God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good.
Thank you.